TVA 21 Academy Radio. We humans want a sea tenderly caressing the shores, a sea whose bright, deep blue soothes sorrows and anger, a sea safe to swim in, a sea where cadavers and waste disappear, a sea of pristine predators who leave us alone, a sea whose delicacies joyfully die in our arms, a sea free of stings, a sea whose waves carry us wherever we'd like to go, a sea that lets us breathe over and under water, a sea that warms us and absorbs our heat, a sea of creatures to talk to, a sea of singing and dancing and falling in love, not falling, a sea of silence, a sea that teaches immortality and peace, a sea that forgives and forgets, a sea that is all gentle touch. But what are the wants of the sea? What are the wants of the sea? Welcome to Ocean Wants, a series of 10 podcasts that playfully explores how non-humans could like our planet to be. Conceived and hosted by Ingo Nierman, Ocean Wants was commissioned to celebrate TBA 21 Academy's 10th anniversary. Episode 4, Cephalopods on Land, featuring Dana Staff. Before fish and other vertebrates proliferated, it was the heyday of the cephalopods. Their descendants, squid, cuttlefish, octopus and nautilus, are still around, coping better with human dominance than many fish. I'm Ingo Niermann, a speculative writer, most recently of the book Mare Amoris, and today I'm talking to Dana Staff, a trained marine biologist who wrote the history of the cephalopods. She speaks from her home in San Jose, California. I'm Dana Staff, and I'm a freelance science communicator and author of books about science. Is it right you grew up near the coast? That's right. So I grew up in Southern California, going to the beaches and to Catalina Island, which is right off the coast there, scuba diving and exploring the tide pools. Um, there was always something that really drew me about the ocean itself. Absolutely, I would have said that I loved the animals in it and um, and seeing a little crab in a tide pool always would capture my attention. But just going to the beach and seeing the water, even if I never really saw anything living in it, I think that something about the expanse of it. You look out uh, at the Pacific from where I was and you don't see anything other than ocean. It's really just a sense of enormity that I didn't really get anywhere else. Perhaps I could have gotten it if I'd been able to look at the stars in the sky without light pollution and smog. But in LA, you can't really see that many stars. But looking out at the sea was really where I got the biggest sense of vastness, of just how big the world could be. The sort of funny family story is that my birthday is in February in the winter, uh, but I always wanted to go to the beach for my birthday and it was always completely empty. We had the whole beach to ourselves. 
And that was at which age? Oh, that was probably um, starting from eight or nine or 10. Uh, and 10 is about when I really got into marine biology and started telling people I was going to be a marine biologist when I grew up. And how did that happen? That came about not as a result of these regular beach trips, although I continued to love them, but as a result of a trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is um, also in California, but it was a many hours drive, part of a big road trip from where I grew up in LA. And one of the first things I saw was the octopus exhibit. They have a giant Pacific octopus on exhibit. Um, that's the largest species of octopus in the world. And I was completely transfixed just stood there in front of this octopus, looking at the octopus, feeling like she was looking back at me. And it was like a transcendent experience. And my memory is that I spent pretty much the whole time that we were at the aquarium staring at the octopus. And uh, that was it. So what did you find so intriguing besides this um, eye contact? I keep revisiting that experience because cephalopods, the group that octopuses belong to, are still my favorite animals. And over the um, almost 30 years since then, I keep thinking about it and thinking about that question, why did they grab me and why have they kept my interest so long? And I think it's a combination of features, but they all come back to a, the intersection of what's familiar and what's different. They have a this gaze that they look out at the world and they interpret it and they have a fairly complex brain that's making all kinds of split second decisions about how to act and how to investigate the world. And they seem to be, to have features that are familiar to us, curiosity, uh, different personalities between different octopuses. And so the way that they see the world and interact with it feels very familiar in many ways to us. And yet when you look at the animal as a whole, it's about as different from us as it can be. You know, it's not a dog that has at least the same number of limbs. It doesn't even have any bones. It's got eight arms covered with suckers, no bones. Um, it has no teeth. It has a beak more like a parrot. And um, even the brain that's so complex is organized and distributed completely differently from ours. The central brain is like a donut that goes around the esophagus, and then so much of it is distributed through the arms. And so I think that's really what drew me, although I didn't know all of these details at the time, but even as a child looking at it, I could see there's something I connect with, something really familiar in a body that's extremely different. Yeah, we got home from this trip and I told my parents I need a pet octopus. Um, and this was already something that I loved to do was to keep pets as strange and unusual as possible. Uh, I had kept uh, some different kinds of fish. I had kept rats um, instead of hamsters because it was just that little bit of difference. And so I said, you know, octopuses are my new favorite animal. I have to have one here in the house. Uh, and for a while, I think my parents sort of put me off and say, yeah, this is a phase, it'll pass. And I just really stuck with it. And finally, my father helped me figure out how to do it. And we found a used secondhand aquarium um, that I could afford with a little bit of help from my family and, uh, and found that you can keep very small octopuses. So not the size of a giant Pacific octopus, but something um, smaller than the palm of your hand in a home aquarium. And in the local tropical fish store had them from time to time. And so I waited until they had one in stock and I got one to keep at home in my aquarium. And it was amazing. <laughs> it was everything I hoped it would be. So yeah, what was it like? 
uh, you know, it was that experience that I'd had in the public aquarium on a small personal scale. It was a much smaller animal, but still um, clearly very interested in and capable of exploring its environment. And so we, I had done all this background research with my dad's help, and we knew we needed to give it a lot of space. So it's a small octopus, but it needs a 40 or 60 gallon tank. I had a 60 gallon tank, which is quite, I mean, it was large enough that I could have climbed inside it. We talk zoos have enrichment for their animals and aquariums more and more do. And so I had this large tank with lots of shells and rocks so that the octopus could do some interior decorating. And it was so interesting to get to see that day to day, how the octopus would move shells around. And uh, one of the more interesting, but also a bit gruesome stories was that I had some I knew that you couldn't keep a lot of other animals with an octopus because they're predators, they're generalists, they'll eat almost anything. But we did have a couple of snails that were in the tank when I first was getting it set up because they'll eat the algae um, and sort of help keep the chemistry cycled by just having another living creature in there. And I thought, well, they're, they're pretty big snails. They were about as big as the octopus. And I thought, well, they, I don't think they'll have any interaction. Well, one morning I came in and the octopus, her name was Serendipity. I had named her Serendipity. She was sitting in a snail shell, having consumed its previous inhabitant. And that was the end of the snails. <laughs> what were your interactions like? They were oh, so neat. Mostly what I fed her was little cubes of frozen brine shrimp because um, although I was living somewhat close to the ocean. It wasn't close enough that it was really easy to get a lot of live food. So I couldn't feed her live crabs and shrimp all the time. But I bought these frozen cubes of brine shrimp that she ate. And I would put them into the tank. And the more I fed her, the more it seemed like she was interested in that interaction. So I wouldn't just leave them there. I would bring the little cube down to wherever her den was, and you would see her two little arms start to come out and explore, and then more arms. And then sometimes we would have a tug of war where I would be holding on to the food and she would grab it. Um, and we'd kind of pull back and forth a little bit. And that would that would bring her out of the snail shell or whatever other den she was inhabiting. And then she would look around and you could really see as small as she was, the eyes kind of taking in who's here in the room. Um, we noticed later that if I came in because she was used to me feeding her, she would often come out of the shell ahead of time, getting ready to, to have this feeding interaction. But if other people came into the room, she would just stay in her shell and watch them. And, um, and so she was clearly capable of recognizing something that I've read a lot more about, um, that octopuses generally recognize their keepers as opposed to other humans. Um, and she, one thing that we were very careful of was to make sure there was never any escape route because we had read all about octopuses being escape artists and any little opening because of not having bones, anything that they can squeeze that beak through the rest of their body can follow. And so, um, my dad helped me set up this tank with uh, duct tape and plastic, you know, a very low budget solution. But we, we covered every single opening and it was enough that we never did have an escape, which I was really grateful for because they can die pretty quickly that way. And um, how was the touch? So neat. So I just love the tiny little suckers on the arms of an octopus and the way they suck onto your skin on the knowledge that they're you're feeling them and they're feeling you, but they're also tasting and smelling you because those suckers are so sensitive. So it's a really 
intimate experience for them even more than for us. And so it it feels like such a, um, I don't know, almost like an ET moment, you know, the classic finger touch between a human and an alien. And I've talked before, and I know other people have too, about this idea that octopuses and their relatives are kind of the closest we have to an alien intelligence, not in the sense that they came from outer space, they evolved here on earth like we did, but they evolved completely separate from us. You know, our last common ancestor was more than 500 million years ago. And so they are in a sense, an alien intelligence an intelligence that evolved on a totally different track from ours. And when you touch them and you feel our, our sensitive fingertips and their boneless but very sensitive suction cups on their arms. Um, it feels like a meeting of the minds. They don't live long. They don't. They don't. And that's actually why as a child I stopped keeping them. So I had serendipity for about one year and then she died. And, you know, if you're used to a cat that lives for 10 or 15 years. It's heartbreaking. I got really attached to her. I knew her habits and behaviors. And, um, you know, and I knew that was just her natural lifespan, especially the smaller species tend to live less than one year, though, even the large ones, like the one that I saw at the aquarium, um, they don't live more than five years. And, uh, and so after serendipity, I kept one more octopus named Rex. And the same thing, yeah, I got very attached to him. Um, he had really interesting behaviors, different foods that were his favorite. And then, uh, and then when he died, I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I get too attached to them. And so I didn't keep any more pet octopuses. Um, but then when I got into college and later graduate school and was studying as a marine biologist, I, at that point, was able to uh, work in the laboratory with a lot of octopuses and squids and uh, even some cuttlefish and really enjoy the interaction that way without having them in my home and have that like super attached interaction. So and since then you never had octopus at home as well no. for your kids? No, no. I, I have a couple of young kids now and we've talked about it because they know that I had a pet octopus and I think it would be really cool. And, um, and I think that now when they're a little bit older and can help with the aquarium, because it's a lot of work to keep it clean, to keep the water um, at the right salinity and the right pH and temperature and everything. I think if they were ready to help with that, then we could keep it at saltwater aquarium. And I'd be open to keeping an octopus. Um, and another thing that occurred to me is that there are a lot of advances in keeping cephalopods generally, and it might even be possible for us to keep a species that would reproduce in captivity. What species would that be? The bobtail squid, I feel like, are some of the best because they're being kept in captivity in labs all around the world. Um, they, Even though they're squid, which generally squid need a huge amount of space because they're swimming up in the open ocean, bobtail squid are more closely related to cuttlefish, and they spend a lot of time just uh, hanging out on the sand or even buried in the sand. And they're, um, one species, uh, Euprimna, is a model species where scientists have been studying their interactions with their bacteria that live inside. And those are actually the squid that were very recently sent off to space to study what the interaction between an animal and its bacterial symbionts is like in microgravity to help us understand more about astronaut biology and symbiosis and things like that. When you started scuba diving as well, you did it to, to look out for, for octopus and cephalopods? 
Yeah, that that very focused interest never really waned. And so um, at the time, 12 was the youngest age in the area that I lived that you could sign up for a scuba diving class. Um, And so I did that. And once again, my amazing, long-suffering father signed up with me so that I would have somebody to dive with. Um, And so at age 12, I learned how to scuba dive. And yeah, my main thought was I'm going to get in the ocean and I'm going to see octopuses. And something that I learned then and have continued to learn throughout my career is that they're not the easiest thing to spot. Uh, So I've done a lot of dives without seeing octopuses and learned to really sort of broaden my scope and really appreciate all of the things that I can see without maybe seeing the one thing that I was hoping for, seeing the environment that they live in, seeing the kelp forests, which is what we have off the coast here. I was mostly diving in kelp forests and just the beauty of the kelp itself, as well as all of the animals that utilize it as a habitat, that have these gorgeous bright orange Garibaldi that are the California state fish. And you'll see seals and sea lions underwater, like dancers. The way they swim is amazing and um, all kinds of weird things. So you didn't have repeated encounters? No. I mean, and part of the problem is that most of the octopuses in the world, and especially the ones we have here, are nocturnal. So it's much easier to see them on night dives. But diving at night is a lot more complicated to set up. It's colder. It's a little bit more dangerous. You need to make sure you have lights and a lot of equipment. And so I didn't do very much night diving, especially as a kid. Um, But, uh, but I have done some, and I think that the uh, most memorable encounters I've had while scuba diving um, have actually been with squid that I've seen. Uh, I went scuba diving in Bermuda and saw Caribbean reef squid. And they travel in groups in these schools and the way they swim and the way they interact with each other, they're flashing colors all the time and communicating with each other in ways that scientists are still trying to piece apart. You wrote a book, Squid Empire or Monarchs of the Sea, and it looks back at the heydays of cephalopods. What did they look like? So I got into this subject of writing this book about the 500 million year evolutionary history of cephalopods because their early ancestors are so weird looking. They The biggest difference is that they all had shells. So this fundamentally squishy aspect of octopuses and squid that we know today is a more recent innovation. And their distant ancestors had these beautiful, complicated, sometimes gigantic shells. And the diversity of them and the strangeness of them really resonated with a lot of what I had read and thought about dinosaurs, honestly. And I think that was that was a link I really wanted to get across in this book is that dinosaurs are a triumph of science communication in my mind, because here are these creatures that don't exist anywhere on earth now. The non-avian dinosaurs, you know, I, there's all the interesting stuff about birds evolving from dinosaurs and therefore being dinosaurs. But in terms of Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops and Stegosaurus, these are animals that we only know from fossils. And yet they're so compelling and they've been presented so well in books, in movies, in children's stories that every three-year-old knows what a Triceratops is. Like most young children who cannot even read yet 
know the scientific names of three or four dinosaurs, if not more. And it's amazing to me. And I think I really was uh, conscious of that because I had very young children at the time that I was working on it. And I thought, here's a whole other group, the cephalopods, that are really compelling when you see the living representatives. Um, I mean, I think once again, most young children who see an octopus are fascinated by it and they want to know more and they have so many questions. And their ancestors are just as fascinating as Tyrannosaurus and Stegosaurus and T-Rex. And so I was like, what if everybody knew that 500 million years ago, even before there was anything like a dinosaur on land, even before there was anything on land, there was a giant in the ocean called Camaraceras and it was a huge shell shaped like an ice cream cone as long as a school bus. And inside it was stuffed this weird squid-like creature with tentacles all over the place. You look at Tyrannosaurus rex and Stegosaurus and you're like, how did we get from there to a chicken? And it's kind of the same question with Camaraceras and these other, the ancient um, ammonites that had these spiraled, coiled shells in knots and shaped like paper clips. And you're like, how did we get from there? to the octopus. These shells, they were not mainly for protection. They were for buoyancy, which is just amazing. It's one of the first innovations that the cephalopod group uh, evolved. And it's interesting because they evolved from uh, ancestors that looked kind of like snails uh, that were just crawling around, squishy bodies stuffed inside very hard shells. And that was definitely for protection. Back at that time, the evolution of those shells was a protection against predators. And then once that shell existed, it kind of um, became something that evolution could work on. And in the case of the cephalopods, the progression was that this shell, the the cephalopods as they were growing their shell, sort of separated it into little chambers so that inside the shell, parts of it could be sealed off. And then those parts could be filled up with gas. And it was just gas that diffused out from their bloodstream um, the same way all animals have dissolved gas in our bloodstream. We have dissolved oxygen and dissolved carbon dioxide being carried around our body. And those dissolved gases diffused out into these chambers in the shells of early cephalopods. And if you're a animal underwater hanging out on the sand or the mud, and a part of your shell gets filled up with gas, it's like holding a helium balloon. And it got, they got light enough that they actually lifted up off the seafloor. And I think of them as these early dirigibles almost, like early airships, where they wouldn't have been very fast. They wouldn't have had much um, in the way of swimming power, but they were floating up in the water at a time when almost everything else was stuck on the seafloor. All your trilobites were crawling around. There were lots of other snails and snail-like things, lots of worms. Everything was crawling around on the seafloor. There weren't yet any fish at all, um, or maybe some very small wormy little fish, but no sharks, definitely no tuna or anything like that. And so these early uh, sort of airship cephalopods were really the first large animals to swim around, to be present up in the water and not just crawling. And that it's that shell that let them do it. And at the same time that it made them buoyant enough to be up in the water, it made them buoyant enough to get really big because as they grew, they could just add more 
more of these chambers. So the body would get bigger and heavier and the shell would get bigger and heavier, but that bigger, heavier shell could then be filled with more and more gas. So it kind of naturally offset the size. And that's how you get these first giants that were the first big animals, period. They were absolutely the biggest animals that had ever existed on planet Earth. What about the jellyfish? Were they around at that time? So absolutely, yes. Jellyfish had already evolved. Um, and it's a tricky thing to try to reconstruct what they looked like at the time because they really don't fossilize very well at all. And so what the reign of the cephalopods look like? Uh, again, there's a lot of speculation involved. We can't be sure. One of the interesting things is that we can't even be sure how many tentacles they had or even if they had tentacles. Um, although the fact that all modern cephalopods that have derived from these ancestors have different kinds of tentacles, even the Nautilus, which is the only living cephalopod that still has a, an external shell, even the Nautilus has tentacles. So we think it's very likely that these ancestors would as well, but how many they had, we have no idea. Um, but it, It's something we can make an educated guess about. Um, and so various evidence from looking at the fossil record later on, where there are impressions of tentacles and looking at the relatedness of modern cephalopods, we can guess that there probably were about 10 tentacles. That seems to be sort of the ancestral condition. You had have these oceans full of cephalopods in long, straight shells. That was most of them, these very long, very straight shells. And so they've had a hard time turning around. So they wouldn't have been able to maneuver very well, but they wouldn't have had to maneuver very well because there was nothing else any faster than them in the ocean. Um, and so they would have just been in the, in the water near the surface, near the bottom, probably moving up and down to a certain extent, um, reaching down to pick up whatever food they could find on the ground, probably scavenging quite a bit, eating things that had already died because any meat-eating animal um, with very few exceptions, is perfectly happy to eat things that have already died. It's much safer than trying to kill it yourself. Um, and so they certainly would have been cleaning up after, after everything else and probably uh, doing quite a bit of hunting as well since they were large enough to do so. And, uh, and then what happened over millions of years uh, is that fish evolved from being small, wormy little things that didn't really bother anybody to being fairly substantial armored fish that could swim fast, move fast. And the really critical thing that fish evolved was jaws. They had these big, heavy jaws. And it was, it was the first time that the ocean had ever seen such a thing, these jaws that were big enough to catch and crack a shell. And so that was, uh, in some ways the end of the reign of the cephalopods. And from a certain perspective, they've been fighting for their lives ever since because the vertebrates, which is the fish and then all of their descendants that include marine reptiles and mammals and more fish, lots more fish, always more fish, um, have been uh, kind of taking over the seas and they've evolved to fill so many niches and they're always happy to eat squid and octopuses whenever they find them. So this made them change like that they got rid of their shell? Right, after the fish. I always struggle a little bit to talk about evolution in terms that are both accurate and easy to understand because um, 
you know, it's easy to say, oh, you know, in response to the evolution of fish and jaws, uh, cephalopods lost their shells. But of course, we know that it wasn't like they didn't have a meeting of all the shelled cephalopods and sit down and say, you know what, I think we should all just take our shells off. Out they go. Uh, So it, it was a change that happened over millions and millions of years that those cephalopods with certain changes in their shells survived better and left more offspring. And then those offspring were able to survive and produce even more offspring. And that's how the changes accumulated over time. And the particular changes that were selected for that seemed to have been really successful um, were really in two directions. One direction was coiling the shell. And so there are two big groups of cephalopods, the nautiloids and the ammonoids. And we still have a nautiloid around. We have the nautiluses today. We don't have any more ammonoids. They all went extinct around the end of the Cretaceous. But both of those big groups were super successful all throughout um, from before and throughout the time of the dinosaurs. So all throughout the Mesozoic era, the Jurassic and Cretaceous, the oceans were full of these coiled shells. And there seems to have been something really advantageous about that straight shell evolving curves and then coils. It probably made it easier to maneuver so that they were less likely to get trapped or stuck by a hunting fish, that they were faster and could do more hunting themselves of animals that were getting faster because they had to escape from the fish, um, and also probably made the shell stronger so that it was less likely to be broken by a vertebrate's jaws. So those two coiled groups did really well for a very long time. And then this other group that became the squids and octopuses today um, evolved first an internal shell so that Uh, that shell that had been something they could hide in became a shell that was hidden inside their body, which at first seems really dumb because it's a nice, heavy structure that you can hide in. But what the advantage of keeping it inside turned out to be was that those animals could be incredibly more flexible, um, literally speaking, in the sense that with a smaller internal shell, they could bend and maneuver and hide under rocks. But also metaphorically, they then had their skin on the outside. And we think that's probably when they evolved the really sophisticated camouflage and the incredible ability to match their environment that we see in cephalopods today. And so that group that evolved the internal shell that then became smaller and smaller, and what we see today in um, squid, for example, they have just this very thin little rod left over of that shell, and then octopuses have virtually nothing. Um, And it allowed them to develop that, that flexibility of form that seems to be so successful for them today. And they got faster. Yes, yes, in fact, that is a, a key feature. So we end up with um, with animals that were able to compete with fish for speed, which the coiled cephalopods never could do, to our knowledge. And they do this uh, through jet propulsion, right? Right, right, which is yet another, there's so many things that are unique to cephalopods that like, if that's all they did, it would be amazing. Um, And then they have more. So they have this amazing color changing skin that's even faster than a chameleon. It's the fastest color change on the planet. Um, And they have their complex brains and behaviors and eyes. And then they have jet propulsion, which is a really weird way for an animal to travel. Almost no other animal does it. Um, But the way cephalopods travel is they fill up their body with water and then squeeze that water out through a very narrow tube. That's called a siphon, a siphon or a funnel, uh, depending on who you talk to. And that narrow jet of water pushes them in the other direction. Um, and it is really fast. 
especially in the, the fastest squid that have evolved today, um, are some of the fastest animals in the ocean and a, and a burst of speed, they can compete with, uh, with pretty much anything that's out there. Um, but interestingly, there's also a real compromise to be made because there's that stage where you have to fill up. So a fish can be swimming continuously by pushing its tail back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and it's continuously pushing the fish forward. But a squid or an octopus or any other cephalopod has to fill up with water before it can squirt the water out. You would like uh, cephalopods to gain the same status as dinosaurs, at least? <laughs> yes, I, I, was, I gave talks for a while that were titled Cephalopods, the New Dinosaurs. I mean, the interesting thing is uh, that the perception of dinosaurs wasn't that great for a long time. It's true. I was a child in, in the 1970s, and at that time... Dinosaurs weren't such a big thing. And I remember still that we were told at school, I mean, dinosaurs, you see, these like tiny heads, they're completely clumsy. No wonder that they got extinct. You know, you right. see, big is not always the best. Yeah, and, and it's a really interesting history of science, the, the history of how we've understood and perceived dinosaurs um, and how, you know, public communication about them has also like slowly reflected more and more of that understanding. And what happened at the end of the Cretaceous uh, was not that they were slowly dying out as used to be thought um, some decades prior because they were just maladapted and stupid, but they were exquisitely well adapted to their environment. And then a giant meteor crashed into the planet. Mm -hmm. And that's just not the kind of thing that any animal can adapt to. That's not how evolution works. The ones who survived were not specially adapted to surviving the impact of a meteor. They were just lucky in one way or another in terms of where they happened to live or that they were small enough not to be affected by the ecosystem changes or for reasons that we're still trying to figure out. And so the dinosaurs that made it through, um, the lucky ones are the ones that evolved into the birds, of course, that we have today. The perception of octopus, squid, cuttlefish as well changed drastically in the last yeah. decades. I mean, from this like really evil creatures that can, yeah, make ships sink, <laughs> kraken, to these like super cute depictions of octopus. The octopus is something that before was, yeah, I mean, if you were an anti-Semite, you would uh, depict Jews as octopus. Right. And now an octopus is this extremely cute <laughs> creature with these, like, manga eyes and, yeah, totally kawaii. Absolutely. That's a, such a great comparison. Old maps and propaganda would depict the spread of communism as this evil octopus over the globe, stretching its tentacles from here to there. And, uh, and yeah, they were seen as, as evil or representatives of greed um, or any number of these things. And yeah, a lot of the transition that I was sort of talking about and hoping for has taken place because they're in kids' books. You see, I have a shelf full of kids' books about octopus, uh, real octopus stories and science, as well as they're just cute characters that people write books about. And it's interesting, when I was a kid, around 
eight, nine, 10, and especially after 10, when I was really into octopuses, I was looking for things to read about them. And there wasn't very much that was accessible and available. The one book that I found that I read over and over and over again was co-authored by Jacques Cousteau, and it's called Octopus and Squid, The Soft Intelligence. Um, And it's still the oldest real book that I know of for a general audience that are about cephalopods. And he, he grapples with this mythology throughout the book. Uh, He's talking about his experiences and those of other people, men and women that he dived with, with the octopuses. And the whole presentation is trying to combat this myth of octopuses as either dangerous or evil or unknowable. And he has all of these stories, vignettes about diving with them and becoming friendly with them. And that was kind of my my early cephalopod resource uh, before there was much that was available to read about them. You could think that octopus, squid, cuttlefish are great now, thanks to this like new empathy for them. But in fact, they're not like endangered, not like the dolphins or the whales. How come? Yeah, they're not, um, for the most part, there isn't a species of cephalopod that is uh, sort of a poster child for conservation, the way a panda or a polar bear or whales, many species nearly went extinct. Um, There is one exception that I want to mention right off the bat, which is that nautilus, the pearly nautilus or the chambered nautilus, um, they're not very fast, um, and they don't have a lot of evasive maneuvers. And that seemed to be going okay for them until humans discovered and decided how beautiful their shells were and started an international shell trade. And in the meantime, all of their cousins, octopuses and squid and cuttlefish, uh, for the most part are doing great. There are so many squid in the world that every year the squid fisheries are growing. And partly the reason people are catching more of them is that other fisheries, many of them for um, literal fish, tuna and salmon and things are declining. And so a lot of the energy is going towards fishing squid instead. And the squid populations are pretty robust to this kind of fishing because of those short lifespans that we were talking about. So most squid and octopuses only live for a year or so, and they make loads of babies. Some of them make hundreds of babies. Some of them make millions of babies. And by that, we call it a quick generational turnover. Why are they not so affected by human intervention in the ecosystem? Um, Yeah, so it's interesting. A number of uh species are not doing very well at all with climate change in particular affecting the oceans. So the oceans are warming, just like the rest of the planet. At the same time, they're also absorbing more carbon dioxide from the air and therefore getting more acidic. Uh, and those two things together are bad enough, but then also that feeds into another loop um, of ocean chemistry, which is that they're getting less oxygen available. Um, and those are all things that cephalopods seem to be relatively able to deal with, more able to deal with than a lot of other species. Um, in particular, a lot of species of squid and octopuses are very flexible with in terms of what temperature they can handle, and they tend to just grow faster at warmer temperatures. 
which then just gives you even more generations to work with and faster turnover for creating more of those superabundant babies. Um, the acidification, for the most part, because they don't have shells anymore, they don't struggle as much with a more acidic ocean that makes it harder to build a calcified shell, which is something that nautiluses are facing along with all of the other seashells and many animals that make their own shells. But of course, squid and octopuses don't have very much to do in that regard. They have a little bit to work on because they'd have to make the beak and they have to make um, these two little ear stones that are technically calcified to keep their balance, but it's much less than a lot of other animals. And then oxygen wise, um, again, it depends on the species, but there are several species that we know of that are really well adapted to living in low oxygen. They have all of these tricks for keeping their metabolism really low so they don't need as much oxygen. And so there are squid species that have been living in certain zones of the ocean that already have very low oxygen. And so they have adaptations to deal with that that make it easier for them to handle the spreading of those zones of low oxygen. And I should add in with that, I keep saying certain species because there are hundreds of species of cephalopods and many of them haven't been studied at all in terms of what they can handle with warming and acidification and oxygen. And some of them are in fact struggling, um, especially species that live in cold waters like polar octopuses. They tend to live much longer lives, which means that they and they have fewer babies. So in that sense, they're less resilient to anything that impacts their population. And as well, they don't have as much temperature tolerance. And just as jellyfish, again, mm -hmm. they profit from less fish. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so we have, um, we have a sense that a lot of these animals that were not at the very top of the food chain that are more in the middle of the food web where they're prey for a lot of other things um, benefit when humans take out the top predators. So if humans go in and have, as we have for many hundreds of years, been taking out the whales and the seals and the sea otters and the sharks and the really big tuna, those are the animals that were eating a lot of squid. There have even been situation of the invasion of the Humboldt squid? Yeah, so that was a big part of my thesis research when I was in graduate school working on my doctoral thesis. My whole lab, really, um, we were in Monterey Bay. Uh, it's kind of in the center of California. And right at a time that the Humboldt squid had been becoming more and more abundant and people were seeing them in places that they hadn't been seen before. And my graduate advisor, uh, William Gilly, Bill Gilly, had been working on Humboldt squid and most of the rest of us in the lab were focused on them as well. And so we were really trying to figure out, is there an invasion for starters? Um, what does it mean? Why is it happening? Uh, and to sort of spoiler, jump ahead to the end of the story, they're gone now. We haven't seen the kind of big Humboldt squid that were being caught in California. Um, we haven't seen them for years. And so the big picture seems to be that it's a species, the Humboldt squid, or sometimes called jumbo squid. It's a species with really variable range and really variable life history. And so what happens is that sometimes the conditions in the ocean are right for them to grow really substantially bigger uh, and 
four feet, five feet, even six feet long, and be able to really also extend their range to the north uh, further than they're usually found. Their range is usually uh, throughout Baja California, Mexico, Central America, South America. They're sort of a tropical and subtropical species. Um, and there are times when, uh, especially the larger uh, adults can swim much further north. And I think the tricky thing is that we're used to migrations being really predictable. You know, we know that the monarch butterflies migrate from here to there every year, exactly where they go. And Humboldt squid, and I think a lot of other squid are more unpredictable in their migrations. They do migrate long distances, but it's not always at the same time every year. I suppose you could call it an invasion, but maybe it's just a it's just an, a regular invasion that happens every some number of years. A visit. A visit. I like that. Yes. There were reports about uh, scuba divers being attacked. I think in one case, a skull got even broken by a bite. I cannot say definitively how reliable those stories are because I heard them, but I was never able to talk to anybody with firsthand experience. I have spoken firsthand with scientists who did go in the water with them and were not threatened at all. I wonder about the relationship between cephalopods and jellyfish. Mm. Do they eat each other? For the most part, they don't interact very much. They're both predatory groups, but they tend to not prey on each other. Both of them are trying to catch much smaller things for the most part. So they are, in a sense, competing because they're both competing to eat things like small fish. Um, but a squid or an octopus is also going to be eating a lot more crustaceans, a lot more crabs, lobsters, um, and the, a jelly that's really for the most part, just kind of floating in the open water is not going to encounter that many of those sorts of things. Um, although they will encounter plankton, both of them will be eating, especially young jellies and young cephalopods will be eating the same kind of plankton probably. Um, and uh, a small squid would certainly be devoured by a jellyfish if it got tangled in the jellyfish's tentacles. So I think of them as sort of obliquely related in the food web. Like there's no cephalopod I can think of whose primary food is jellies. Not like like sea turtles, for example, that eat jellies on purpose. Um, there isn't any squid or octopus that I can think of that does that. And same with the jellies, they tend to catch in their tentacles things that can't swim that well. So something fast like a squid or really um, sneaky and able to hide under things like an octopus is just not going to be captured in that sort of situation. But And yet there are probably all of these ways that they interact where they're either competing for the same resources or, yeah, like the, the adult jellies eating young uh, larval sort of planktonic squid and octopuses. I wonder if um, cephalopods could become again these monarchs of the sea. It is certainly something that I have thought about and talked about. Uh, you know, what would that look like? Um, you know, you can think about it in terms from the really, really sort of far-fetched science fiction. You know, what if all of the vertebrates in the world went extinct? You know, no more humans, no more whales, no more um, fish. Uh, you know, then then I think cephalopods would be poised to become. Uh, one of the top, if not the top predators in the ocean, for sure. 
fill all those niches that are now filled by seals and um, seabirds and uh, all kinds of things. And my advisor, Bill Gilley, came up with these really fantastic ideas that I loved of uh, squid actually evolving over many, many millions of years to be able to survive freshwater, which they can't do now, and even to survive on land. And so there was this idea of swamp octopuses and um, and eventually these giant squid, sort of like elephants marching around on the jungles on land, which I think is delightful. And then you can range in speculation from that level, which is basically science inspired science fiction to like on a very immediate level, you know, a lot of uh, vertebrates, large predators are endangered um, and we don't know how they're going to do over the next 50 years of the next hundred years as climate change continues to change as sea levels continue to rise as water continues to warm. So you can say, okay, what if, um, it certainly seems like a number of species of squid and octopus are doing better than a number of other things in the ocean. And are they going to be able to really spread out and expand their ranges? Uh, and you might be seeing them in places that you didn't see them before, um, maybe greater abundances than they were present before. Maybe there's a different scenario so that humans and cephalopods kind of engage in a sort of symbiosis um, once due to overfishing and um, climate change and pollution fish are pretty much gone humans depend on on them as source of protein and at the same time they help them by minimizing their predators and then you could think even one step further where they become our pets in a more common fashion and that there's a sort of co-evolution taking place. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about when humans and certain other species have entered into a closer relationship. You know, I think the one that maybe pops into the head most commonly is, is humans and wolves becoming humans and dogs today. And, uh, of course, to have anything like that with cephalopods, we'd need to have a, either a much more aquatic version of our lifestyle or to have the cephalopods somehow become a bit more, more terrestrially based. But, um, but, you know, we think about humans in times and places when we've lived in regular close proximity to the sea and um, people have developed relationships with seabirds, for example, training them to dive and hunt for them. And could you do that with a squid or an octopus to train it to, to help you um, salvage wrecks from underwater or something like that? It's, it's an intriguing concept. I think what, what I often run into when I'm thinking about it and chatting with people about it is the much shorter lifespan of squids and octopuses compared to most other species that humans have engaged in this sort of long-term relationship with. So that even if there's ways that you can train them, which you obviously can, I mean, aquarists who keep octopuses will train them to climb into a container to be weighed, to be examined, but you don't have years and years to build that kind of relationship because it's, it's over so quickly. So one thing that I've thought about is whether cephalopods through thousands or more years of natural selection could potentially evolve longer lifespans. 
um, or if human intervention could give them that. And I, I really like to read and write science fiction. And one of the stories that I've written was based on this idea that if humans um, removed the ability to reproduce from squid, would they live longer? Because the short lifespan of cephalopods seems to be very tied to their reproduction. It's part, they become mature, most species become mature and reproduce only once. And they've kind of turned their whole bodies into reproduction machines and they lay their eggs and then their bodies just fall apart. So it's like, okay, what if you spayed and neutered them, essentially, you know, remove the gonads. And, and so I, I wrote this story about squid that had been uh, had had their gonads removed and could live many years longer. And then humans could develop a relationship with them. Uh, in this particular story, I was imagining humans racing them the way humans race horses, uh, is you'd have these underwater race courses and you'd train the squid to go through them. I think you could, yeah, think of a lot of things, yes. As you mentioned, make them even capable of uh, being outside of the water for longer periods of time. Again, it's something that they can survive already for up to half an hour. Is that correct? Yeah. Again, it's species dependent, of course, as all mm. things are. But yeah, especially the octopuses that live in and around tide pools anyway, they can fill up their mantles with water the same way they fill it up to do jet propulsion. But then instead of squeezing it out, they just hold it, kind of like holding your breath. And then they can crawl around on land for a little while. And yeah, when it comes to enforce evolution, breeding, genetic engineering, the mm -hmm. short lifespan is actually beneficial. So you can go on much faster. There's a much faster trial and error. And so you can think of all kinds of, of mutations. And then maybe at the very end, you solve the lifespan problem. The idea of them on land is really compelling. Uh, and I have a vivid memory of one of the very first websites I ever visited in the early 90s, I guess, um, was called Save the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus. And it was a joke site. And I knew that. And it still exists as the beautiful thing about it. Um, it's a whole website devoted to this fictional creature, the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus, um, that's uh, supposedly climbs around in the trees of uh, Washington and Oregon, which, which are very damp places. So it has a lot of moisture in the air to help it survive. We really want them to, I think. And because in some ways, they have the flexibility of physical form that I think reminds some people of monkeys swinging through the trees. And so you can imagine an octopus on its long, stretchy arms swinging through the trees. Uh, and they can manipulate things. I mean, their suckers in some species are almost like fingers where they can bend a sucker to grab something and really manipulate it on a fine scale. And so I think we look at that and we're like, it's like early hominids. Are they going to start, like they do very simple tool use, but are they going to start building more complex things? And I think we'd love to see that kind of thing happen. I think one of the real struggles with cephalopods on land is that they have this really permeable skin. And so closely related animals like snails, which are in the same larger group, um, we have land snails only because they can hide in their shells if it gets too dry out. Um, land slugs that have no shells to hide in are really limited to moist areas where they can stay wet in the leaf litter um, if they need to. And they're small as well. Uh, you can't imagine a, a land slug the size of a, uh, of a giant squid. 
so they would need to evolve um, or be given through gen- some kind of genetic engineering some sort of protection from the from desiccation. Oh, new land ecosystems that are very mm. moist. <laughs> oh, I like that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, an even bigger question that I think is why they couldn't evolve to live, or have not yet evolved to live in freshwater. Uh, because lots of other mollusks have, we have freshwater snails and freshwater clams and freshwater mussels, all kinds of things, but there aren't any freshwater cephalopods. And it does seem to be, again, this very permeable skin along with their very active lifestyle. So a clam um, doesn't do very much as a general rule compared to a squid or an octopus. And that higher metabolism maybe makes it harder for them to keep the salt balance correct. Because any sort of freshwater aquatic animal has to deal with keeping their body saltier than the water around them. Then on the other side, there's so many things that they can do that we would love to do, if not oh, die yes. to do. Yeah, absolutely. Shape-shifting, you mentioned, camouflage, but as well this multitasking thing when you think of octopus that with these like separate brains and more equipped for, for modern life. Yeah? <laughs> In some ways they are, right? And I, I was talking with my brother about this, actually, this idea that if an octopus puts its arm through a hole and then it you know, its central brain connected to its eyes can't see what's through that hole. But the arm still has a certain ability to perceive its environment and make decisions about what to do. And so part of you is there. Or are you more centralized and you're just like, well, when I put my arm through a hole, it does something and then comes back with food. And that's just what arms are supposed to do. Uh, the squirting ink is pretty cool, too. I mean, I don't know that any of us really need to be squirting ink. It's less useful on land, to be sure. But it's something that so few other animals do. And they can squirt ink as a smoke screen. They can squirt a blob of ink and mucus that's called a pseudomorph that looks like themselves. So then they can jet away and trick a predator. It's pretty cool. If you could change into a cephalopod for a certain period of time, which one would you choose? Oh, it's such a hard choice. So I think what I'm torn between is wanting to be a really classic octopus, you know, like the kind that I fell in love with, the the giant Pacific octopus that lives in a sunlit area. And I would get to really to just be in the ocean in a place that I've seen and love in the rocky reef or in a kelp forest, but to really see and experience it through the eyes of this animal that's evolved to live there. And what does the kelp forest taste like? And what does it look like? And how, what does it feel like to squeeze under the rocky crevice that I've seen you squeeze under before? That whole experience would be amazing. But then I'm torn between saying that and saying something like a giant squid or a colossal squid, because then I'd know. Right now, we know so little about what a giant squid does deep in the sea. We don't even know how many there are, um, but it seems very likely that there are enough that they could have social interactions. Uh, But in the deep sea, what does that look like? And so I'd love to know what it's like to live somewhere where the only light is bioluminescence and you can make it yourself and you can see your conspecifics making it. You can see other animals making it. What do you do all day? How do you find food? How do you find mates? Um, 
do you spend a lot of time sleeping or do you spend a lot of time swimming and do you have the whole uh, seafloor sort of mapped in your mind of where there are ridges and where there are vents and where the water gets hot and where it gets cold? They've been described, and I think this is a pretty good way to describe them, as sort of the invertebrate fish, like what... Uh, the way mollusks were able to build a fish. And sometimes when you're underwater seeing them swim, if it's at a distance, you can't always tell if it's a squid or a fish because their their shape is very similar. They're very uh, hydrodynamic and um, they have fins that are helping them to stabilize, which is similar to what the way a lot of uh, fish swim. And so I think that's so fascinating how convergent a squid and a fish are in a lot of ways. Your fiction writing, is it a lot about cephalopods? Yes, cephalopods do tend to work themselves into my story. And the first short story that I ever published actually was about uh, a far future Earth in which octopuses have evolved civilizations underwater and they have cities underwater. And humans, meanwhile, have all but left the planet having colonized other planets in the solar system. And there's this one last group of humans that wants to stay and initiate contact with them. The particular group that we were following in this story has developed a kind of underwater vehicle that can go on land because it contains water. It's like a a sort of big bucket on wheels. And so they're exploring the, the ruins that humans have left behind on land. How do they communicate? They're communicating still with their skin. They're using uh, changes of colors and patterns to communicate with each other. Uh, And also to think there's a much thinner barrier between thought and speech in their species uh, in in this particular group. And so it's uh, it's actually kind of hard to have a private thought. You have to be pretty careful about what you're thinking because it just shows up on your skin most of the time. And they are able to use this changes of color in ways as well for abstract um, expressions? Yeah, that was what I I decided to go with, was that you could develop from whatever concrete language they currently have. And that's still something that, that scientists are studying and debating, but we're pretty sure that some species of cephalopods can communicate uh, interest, uh, desire, Uh, worry, fear, these sorts of things uh, that you could go from there to then like, here's on my skin, this idea that I have for the future, for whatever we want to do. So what did they think of the humans? Well, they had a lot of different thoughts. So that was one of the central conflicts was that there was a group that are really interested in humans and want them to stick around to ask questions of them. Um, And then there were a number of others that are like, well, humans left all this pollution, get them out of here. Like we wanted to take the whole space for ourselves. So there was some interspecific violence because I don't think that uh, octopuses would be particularly peaceful societies. (laughs) This was the fourth episode of Ocean Wants, featuring Dana Staff. Ocean Wants is a podcast series commissioned and produced by TVA 21 Academy. Conceived, hosted, and edited by Ingo Nierman. Music composed and arranged by Villa Haimala. Intro read by Joan Jonas. Credits read by Stacey Boucher. Sound edited by Robin Michel. Produced by Ingo Nierman and Maria Montero Sierra. Hear more episodes at ocean archive.org, dertunk.ch, 
or subscribe with your podcast provider.